Good morning. Welcome to 1410 WIZM, the Plant Doctor Show. Uh, now, today's topic is going to bounce around a little bit, and it will all come together and make sense in the end, I promise. But the uh, uh, first thing, though, uh, which I found quite amusing, and even with the uh, fact that the uh, local government is still pushing for it, the originator of the concept of no mo may uh, has pushed back from the notion. <laughs> now they're saying that it's not a good idea and that there is no proof that this substantially increases the food source for any of the pollinators. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of a good joke. You know, I talked about this at in length last year and also and not just I pointed out the fact that it wasn't going to uh, make any difference whatsoever but it does more damage than it does good to our local environment so um, you know if you're participating in it uh, or if uh, you're thinking about doing it uh, still don't it's not good for the pollinators, it's not good for the lawn, and it's actually bad. So uh, I'm going to try to you know, stay away from that. But also, if you've been listening to the news or doing any surfing on social media recently, you've more than likely been hammered with reports of you know, them spraying mosquitoes having adverse effects on our honeybees. And uh, I figure we talked about that a little bit today because the press loves using these scare tactics, scare tactics and stuff like that, and they make things seem a lot more dire than they actually are. But as always, if you've got a question about anything that's green or growing, it does not have to be about the topic of the day. Uh, you can go ahead and give me a call or shoot me a text. The number down here at Wisdom is 608 Seven eight five seven nine one four, and uh, let's see what was the name of that uh, insecticide they were using down here. Nala, that's it. Uh, that is what they're using in a lot of areas to combat the skeeter problem, and it is a responsible choice as it breaks down much quicker than most other insecticides, and it becomes inert in about a couple of days. Now, when uh, spraying for mosquitoes, you're kind of stuck because you're forced into spraying a broad-spectrum insecticide when you're going for the adults. Uh, In most cases, you know, well, not most cases, in a lot of other cases, uh, when you're targeting insects uh, like grubs or something like that, you can be a lot more target-specific. Uh, like using merit on a lawn will, uh, you know, take out the grubs without harming, you know, uh, the ants or the honeybees or stuff like that. But in the case of going for the adult mosquitoes, you got to get them while they're there, so you got to hit them up with something that's going to, you know, basically knock out any insect life across the board. Uh, so you try to use something that breaks down and becomes inert very, very quickly. And that's what this NALAD does. And it does, however, carry a danger signal word. And uh, that's only because, from what I was reading, I, I didn't see anything on there 
where it could cause you any, uh, you know, like chemical burns or anything like that. But it is an organophosphate. And in the state of California, thanks to Berkeley, uh, organophosphates have been uh, crucified, more or less. Uh, and most of them have been uh, pulled off the market due to a very, very flawed study, oh, about 20 years ago. Then uh, that study, actually it was longer than that, that study probably about 25, 30 years ago at this point. But uh, they determined that organophosphates were causing cancer in humans. And this is uh, going back to what I was talking about, the uh, press blowing things out of proportion. Now, the main and the larger study, which I actually had a part in, uh, that was ordered by Governor George Pataki back in New York after uh, the more commonly quoted study had... uh, you know, stuck in everybody's mind because that's the one that everybody was uh, pushing. And the thing is, is that one study followed one garbage, uh, one area out in Staten Island, New York, because it had a cancer cluster there. Okay, fine, a cancer cluster. So there must be some thing causing this to happen. And the only common denominator that they found was all these homes within this uh, cancer cluster had been exposed to organophosphates uh, due to uh, spraying for uh, ticks uh, that carried the Lyme's disease because that was really big back then. Uh, And it was becoming a big-time issue. So uh, that is one common denominator that all these houses had is they were all using... uh, or had uh, pesticides used, insecticides used that had organophosphates uh, mixed into them to control attacks. Now, mind you, that's where they let it go. Oh, wow, it must be those nasty insecticides. They never stopped to uh, do any history of this cancer cluster. Where this development was made on, or, you know, uh, placed, and what was underneath the ground. And it just so happened that this uh, development where this cancer cluster was located was built on top of a landfill. And that landfill was the same place where they were dumping the waste from the Manhattan Project. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, the waste from the A-bomb and such. And that's before they knew about the residual uh, effects of the radiation. And so that stuff was, uh, you know, probably buried in cans and stuff like that uh, underneath the ground and slowly leaching out. And uh, therefore, <laughs> they're sitting on top of that, too. But, but that didn't enter into the study. The only thing that entered into the study was the organophosphates. And it was an insecticide, so it fit their narrative. And uh, that's where that came from. Oh, but, uh, yeah, there's not that much going on with that. And as far as the honeybees goes, 
you don't really have to worry about them as much as you would be made to think that you should. I mean, you listen to the uh, press, and all you hear is, you know, you kill off the honeybees that we're all going to die and the world's going to end as we know it. Hey, that would have been a good song uh, to play this morning. But, oh, well. Uh, it's not that dire. And to understand this, you need to have a refresher course in history uh, with a few bits of trivia that you might not have been taught in uh, school. But please feel free to look them up. Now, we've all heard the stories uh, in our grade school classes of the first Thanksgiving. And, you know, I'm sure there's still these ones are still being taught since the American Indians were the good guys in this. And they were teaching the dumb white people uh, how to uh, plant maize, or what is now known as corn here in America. And just a little side note, uh, corn, the word corn, C-O-R-N, uh, does not really mean that yellow stuff that is grown all over in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the proper name for that uh, plant is maize, M-A-I-Z-E. Corn is actually a term that signifies the most popular grain that is grown in a geographic area. Over in Germany, if you were to ask for cornbread, you'd be served rye bread because that's the most popular grain. But uh, back to the subject. Okay, so here were the starving pilgrims, and the local Indians uh, came to help them. They, the, I guess the first winter killed off most of the pilgrims, and then they were trying to scratch out an existence and farming and stuff like that the next spring and not doing too good, so the Indians felt sorry for them, and they figured they'd give them a hand, and they taught them how to plant and grow corn. And they taught them how to fertilize each plant by burying a fish underneath each planted seed. And, you know, we were all taught this back in grade school. Uh, maybe some of the younger folks weren't because then what they started teaching started going downhill. But I'd say anybody 50 and over was taught this in grade school. Now, the significance of this lies with the date the pilgrims landed. And that was November 11th. 1620. Now, keep uh, that in mind, 1620. Now, not just for the historical aspect of our forefathers, but actually there is some serious scientific importance to that date as well. So keep that date in mind. Now, we're going to fast forward to today's media. And if you listen to the reports in the sensationalized press, you're going to hear that if it were not for the honeybees, the flowers wouldn't bloom, the trees wouldn't bear fruit, and we would all starve because the world we know is going to come to an end since there's not going to be any honeybees left to pollinate our food plants. But wait a minute. How can that be? Now, the stuff about this is where the stuff from the pilgrims comes back into play. The honeybee, uh, actually the full name of the honeybee, the full common name is the European honeybee. Uh, there is a honeybee here in the United States, but they're garbage. They don't produce honey. They don't pollinate worth a darn. Uh, they, they do pollinate, but very, very little. And our wild honeybees in this area are not that great of uh, producers for honey or anything. But the European honeybee was. 
that wasn't introduced until the 17th century with the arrival of the third and subsequent loads of European settlers. In 1622, two years later after the uh, first pilgrims arrived. Okay, how does that make sense? How could they have farmed prior to the introduction of our Savior, the honeybee? Now, if the honeybee was to up and disappear, we would all die. But yet, it was never here. The honeybee is not indigenous to this country. European honeybee, at least. So, uh, you know, that right there is the first thing. Trees will grow, flowers will grow, vegetables will grow. And, you know, there won't be any noticeable difference if you killed off every single honeybee in this country right now. It wouldn't make it that big of a uh, deal. I mean, you'd the honey, the bee yachtkeepers and stuff like that would be ticked off, and the price of the honey would go through the roof, but uh, it's not going to really have an impact on any other plants. Now, as farming increased, uh, North American farmers for some reason believed that they had to rely on the newly domesticated honeybee for pollination. And uh, it, that became the new uh, truth that the honeybee was, you know, uh, out there doing all the pollination. Heck, we learned it in school even back in the you know, 60s and 70s that the honeybees pollinated all the uh, plants. In fact, that's where the story of the birds and the bees, you know, uh, the pollination uh, aspect all comes from. So, I mean, this isn't anything new that's been being pushed, but it is false. Now, bee or hive decline has been going on ever since they were introduced back in 1692, very honestly. The European honey bee has always had major issues here in North and South America as well. And, uh, but they decided to lay all the blame on Monsanto and other insecticide companies for killing off, uh, you know, the honeybees. But the fact remains that ever since their introduction to this hemisphere, they have not been able to survive because there are so many things going against them that they're not used to since they're not indigenous to this area. And this falls, uh, brings to mind a movie. Um, a war of the worlds where the aliens invaded Earth and a germ that everybody here on Earth was used to and it's a minor inconvenience to us wound up killing the aliens because they were not exposed to it before. And that was the common cold germ. And in effect, this is the same thing. Uh... Since these bees are not indigenous to this area, they have not built up tolerances to local fungi and mites and other pathogens that have an adverse effect on them. So they die. Simple as that. And it's been happening since 1622, the first load that was brought here. That's why they kept bringing more loads over here, but even back then. Insecticides play a very, very small part. 
And, in fact, if they don't die from insecticide exposure, they will still die, more than likely, from, uh, you know, uh, the natural causes. Now, come the 1950s, this is when something really interesting happened. And we'll get back to talking about that in just a minute. I just realized we went pretty long that uh, shot. So, uh, but when we come back, uh, we're going to go back to the 1950s and talk about another type of bee that was introduced to this area. And uh, that was to help out the European honeybee back then. But we'll be right back here at 1410 WIZM, The Plant Doctor Show, in just a minute. Go ahead and give me a call. Shoot me a text. The number down here at WISM is 608-785-7914. Okay, and we're back. We don't really have enough time to continue talking about the uh, honeybees. We'll have to hit that one up after uh, the news break. But uh, this gives me a good chance to uh, remind all fathers and husbands out there that, hey, tomorrow's a big day. It's Mother's Day. Don't forget. So, uh, you know, head on out. Uh, you might want to uh, go ahead and uh, try a new tradition uh, this year instead of, uh, you know, getting her you know, a box of candy or, you know, the roses, which are always nice. But uh, <coughs> instead, especially if you have kids, you might want to think about doing a Mother's Day garden. And you don't even need to have property to do this. You could do a Mother's Day gardening inside of a pot, if you wish, and do a nice potted, you know, uh, make a nice flower pot arrangement for her. But uh, have mom come along, bring the kids, uh, go to a nursery, pick out some plants, and uh, be in a pot, garden, window box, what have you. Uh, bring them home and, uh, you know, go ahead and... Have mom sit back with a cool drink in her hand, and uh, you and the kitties do all the work. And, uh, you know, give mom a break. And let the kids pick out some plants, and, you know, with your guidance, of course. Uh, and let mom pick out some plants, and uh, go ahead and you know, start that. Uh, it's a wonderful tradition that we've had in uh, our family that uh, comes from Terry's uh, side. And uh, we've been doing it for years, and that way there you have memories grow alongside with the plants, too. So, yeah, it's pretty good. And as Terry always says, uh, that her plants will never die because they love her. But uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break here and take care of a little bit of uh, news, a little bit of business. But we'll be right back at 1410 WICM, the Plant Doctor Show, in just a minute. Go ahead and give me a call. Shoot me a text. The number down here at WISM is 608 785-7914. And we are back with the Plant Doctor Show. Uh, today, in between uh, calls, we're going to be talking about, oh, no, we talked about Nomo May, and now we're talking about honeybees. And we'll be talking about some other things, too, uh, that where the media and the government has stepped in and made things a little bit more difficult than it really needs to be. Uh, uh, they're great when you need them, but uh, they can mess things up like a son of a gun uh, a lot of the time. So we need to look at things with a clear head. And uh, this is going to be a case, uh, this continues talking about the honeybee, because back in the 1950s, 
they thought they had the cure, or not the cure, but a way of dealing with this uh, hive decline that was the European honeybee was experiencing. And that was to bring in African honeybees and mix them with the European honeybees. Uh, now, the African honeybees were known for their hardiness and their ability to adapt to new surroundings. All the issues that plagued their European cousins didn't phase these guys at all. And if that wasn't reason enough to replace their earlier counterparts, they produced a lot more honey than European honeybees did the boot. So everything was great about these little working wonders. Everything! Except for that one little nasty trait that they, these things had. And that was that they were a lot more aggressive than their European cousins. And they protected their hives with gusto. And in fact, they would not only guard their hive, their hives, but they would also chase down anyone or thing that would get close to their hives and sting the heck out of them. And here's another difference that the uh, uh, European and the African honeybee uh, have. European honeybees could only sting you one time because the stinger came out and then the uh, bee would die. Not so much with the African honeybees. These guys could keep on going like the Energizer Bunny and uh, with no ill effects. So uh, basically, uh, when they would sting, they also emitted a, a an alert pheromone that would drift back to the hive, and the whole hive of all the worker bees would empty out in a cloud of very, very ticked-off insects with attitudes, and they would land on their uh, victim and sting them into submission. Uh, and unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it meant killing what they were stinging. And these things didn't take any prisoners. And uh, that made the African honeybee become more affectionately known as the killer bee. And, uh, we, you know, Hollywood's taken off and had movies such about them. And, of course, those are exaggerations, too. But... Uh, yeah, the that's where the killer bees came from. They were trying to uh, find an alternative to the European uh, bee back in the 50s, and uh, that's what happened. And this isn't the only time that an introduction of a new species or our environment has backfired. Uh and it's always done with the best intentions. I mean, in that case, it was to, you know, protect our beekeepers and, you know, make sure that we had pollinators here. And, uh, you know, it was all good intentions. Uh, but, and it's always done with good intentions. A lot of times... Uh, in order to reduce the amount of pesticides, uh, they will bring in a new insect that will target other insects. Uh, very much in the case, uh, the, the 
farmers were told that instead of using malathion or seven, uh, or actually they were probably using, I don't know if they were using DDT on uh, vegetable crops or not, but uh, I know they were using malathion and seven back then to uh, combat insects on uh, crops, uh, they should try this alternative method. And they were told to bring in this carnivorous insect that would feed on uh, these little tiny adelgids that were attacking their alfalfa crops. <coughs> and it seemingly worked for a while and actually worked pretty good. But the population of the new species grew unchecked because, guess what, there's no natural predator to that bug in this area. And this turned out to be a predator or an insect that we are now all way too familiar with, the Asian lady beetle. And we're familiar with that because they come into our homes every fall. And uh, we'll get we'll finish talking about that in a little bit. We've got a caller coming in, and we've got two open lines too. Uh, I don't think we have any text, so I'll go back and check that in just a minute. But uh, the number for uh, tech or talk, text or talk is six zero eight seven eight five seven nine one four. Good morning. You're on the Plant Doctor Show. Who's this? Hi, this is Rick. Hey, Rick. How's it going? Not bad. Okay. Got a question on trying to kill out an old flower bed. Okay. My son, they, they bought a house last year, and they want to, they, they've got this, it's about a 15 by 15-ish size flower bed area. Okay. And they want to, they're trying to get it all out. It's like irises, it's peonies, a bunch of different things in there. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I know he, he was trying to research it. He says the Roundup for killing grass, and, you know, in 24 hours later you can reseed type thing. Mm-hmm. But it says it doesn't do flowers. Really? Yeah. Roundup so, kills. But I was just wondering the, if, if you knew which specific one you can use to wipe out everything. Okay, Roundup, standard Roundup, uh, which uh, the active ingredient is called uh, glyphosate. Uh that stuff will knock out just about anything. About the only thing that it won't take out that I know of is uh, sedges. And that's like uh, that yellow nut sedge uh, stuff that comes up in your lawn. Uh, it won't have any effect on that, but it takes out everything. Okay. And, uh, and, and that's the type of thing that you can uh, uh, resod and everything then in mm-hmm. you know, a couple days? Yeah. Okay, now, uh, in speaking of uh, time frame-wise, maybe that's what you're getting uh, mixed up. It's not going to kill a flower as quickly as it would kill off the grass. And uh, you won't even see see it killing the grass uh, for about two weeks, very honestly. Uh, The damage is done after a day or two, yes. And you can go ahead and reseed. But... The uh, damage is not apparent for a couple of weeks, generally. Okay. Uh, maybe after about a week, if the weather's uh, perfect, you can start seeing some effects of it. But uh, now grass has got a very high metabolism to it, uh, where a lot of your other plants uh, do not have such a high metabolism. So it's going to uh, ingest it a lot slower. And okay. 
So I would go ahead and spray it, leave it go for a couple of weeks at least, then go ahead and uh, till up the area. And that way there it will have a chance for it to uh, soak down inside the plant and get to the roots, the bulbs or the tubers. Uh, you mentioned irises or uh, peonies. Uh, and mm-hmm. it'll, you know, do its damage that way. Uh, another good way, too, is to call into Dan's Deals on uh, Saturday morning, and or Mike's Market, I'm not sure who's here next week, and just announce that, hey, you've got these peonies, you've got these uh, irises, and they're free for, if you want to come out and dig them out, because I know a lot of people would like some plants like that. Very true, very true. So, uh, you know, you might want to give that a shot, too, and that way they're, you don't kill them, they're put to good use somewhere else. Correct. So, but uh, once you, uh, like if we give them away, it's fine. And then uh, once we do go to spray, just leave it set and work for a couple weeks. Give it time. Yeah, give it some time to uh, work its way down inside the plant. Uh, Roundup will kill the plant all the way down to the root. Uh, but you're going to have to give it a chance to get down there if you uh, spray it and cut it immediately. Now, you can get away with the uh, – actually, you're not even supposed to cut the grass immediately after uh, spraying it. You can seed right after it, but that's uh, thinking that uh, old grass plants are still going to be there. You shouldn't remove that grass plant for a while yet because it's going to take a while for it to die. Okay? Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Okay, good luck with that. And thanks for the phone call. And, yep, the Roundup is pretty much broad spectrum. There's very, very few plants Roundup does not take out. And if you read the label, and the label to Roundup is actually like this little book, uh, (laughs) it's pretty, it's not a simple one, you know, way of applying the the pesticide. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways to apply it. Uh, you can even use this stuff straight in some cases. Uh, painted on leaves in some cases. Uh, I've known people that uh, use it uh, to paint on stumps. Uh, like if you're doing a hackberry or uh, you know something along those lines. Uh, you cut down a hackberry tree, which always sends up sucker growth. You go ahead and you paint the stump with Roundup, and it will kill it off that way. But uh, there's all sorts of different things, and they're all explained in the label. And the label is literally a little booklet. So uh, make sure you read that very well. Okay, good morning. You're on the Plant Doctor Show. Who's this? This is Ed. Hey, Ed. How's it going? It's going. How about you? Doing good. What can I do for you? I got one of those world-famous hibiscus tree plants that you buy at the box stores. Okay. And I had it I had it inside all winter. Mm-hmm. And I put it outside now that it's warmer, and the leaves are turning whitish. Mm-hmm. And what, what's going on? Uh, probably a little bit of shock. Uh, even though the temperatures are warmer outside, they're still quite a bit cooler at nighttime uh, than we're experiencing in our homes. And okay. uh, we've had some cooler weather. I'm not sure when you brought it out. But uh, within the last week. In the last week, okay. So uh, temperatures have been pretty steady, 60s or 70s, which is okay. But most yeah. people's homes are, you know, in the 70s, and that's pretty much where they stay at. Uh, where the nighttime temps can be dropping down to the 50s, that can give given a little bit of a shock. Also, if you have it out in the full sun, that could be uh, 
bothering the plant. Plants can get okay. sunburned the same way as a human can. Uh, they don't turn red. They turn either brown or whitish or uh, such. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the sun will damage the uh, outer layers of the uh, plant as well. So that could be okay. what's going on right there. Well, last summer I didn't have any problems with it, though, and it was in the same place. Was it in the same spot? Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe it could be that uh, when you brought it out last year that you had some overcast skies for a few days, and, you know, the same as a human, you know, we go out and we tan a little bit, and uh, we get a little bit of uh, sun, a little bit more sun, a little bit more sun, and that protects us from burning down the line. Uh, you know, maybe last year uh, Mother Nature provided that. And, you know, from the time that you brought it out, and, uh, you know, it just slowly, uh, you know, got the sunlight that way. Uh, oh, okay. It's very possible. I'm not saying that's the reason All why right. it happened, but that can happen very easily, and especially to a uh, hibiscus. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll think I'll put it underneath that little deck that we have and then. Uh, See what happens. I wouldn't put it underneath total shade, but maybe some uh, partial shade type area would be great. Okay? Uh, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, you take care and have a great day. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And yet, uh, a lot of plants, people don't realize that, that uh, plants can become sunburned. And I've even seen this happen to trees, uh, where you go and get a tree at a uh, nursery. And uh, this happens a lot in uh, commercial nurseries where, you know, you've got not so much like the nurseries we have around here, but I'm talking about the commercial ones like Muser Forest and such where you go out and you just have acres and acres of bald and burlap trees and such that are out there. And they, they're all sitting next to each other, you know, root ball next to root ball. Uh, the trees themselves aren't that big. Uh, they're only, you know, sticking out a couple of feet on the top. But they, do, when they're all stacked up on top of that like each other, they do create a canopy. And they shade themselves. And you go out and uh, say, you know, they're sitting out there for a month and a half, two months, and somebody comes in and buys a whole bunch of trees. Uh, then you come in and you grab a couple of trees and say they're maples. Maples are supposed to be planted out in full sunlight, fine and dandy. Take this maple, stick it out into the full sunlight, and all of a sudden you look at it a couple of weeks later, and the skin's blistered on it. The bark is blistered, and you're wondering, what in the heck is going on? It's because a tree, even though it was outside, was underneath the canopy before of uh, other trees' uh, leaves, and uh, now the sunlight's hitting it. And uh, it can actually wind up giving the bark, a sunburn, and I've seen this happen. It's pretty common, actually. Uh, A lot of people see it and they write it off as, you know, some other reason, but it is probably one of the more common problems with plants. But back to talking about the bugs, because, oh, wait, do we have to take a break here? Yeah, we do have to take a break here. Unfortunately, yeah, take care of a little bit of business, a little bit of weather, uh, we'll be back here at 1410 WIZM in just a minute. Go ahead and give me a call. We've got more than enough time to answer a call or two, 608-785-7914. 
Now, today, in between uh, callers, we were talking about uh, you know, different things uh, where they came in and they, with all good intentions, they tried to not use insecticides and they tried to go another route and uh, by bringing in something biological. And that was the European lady bug. Uh, bug, uh, lady beetle, uh, is or the Asian lady beetle rather, not the European. Uh, back in its native lands, these bugs do not die off every year. Instead, they migrate to vol- like, yeah, volcanically active areas, where they seek out little cracks and crevices in the naturally warmed ground, where they overwinter and they reemerge uh, come springtime. Unfortunately, here in their new home, we're fresh out of volcanically active areas. So these little critters go and seek out warmer winter quarters. Uh, (laughs) They're not going to find any volcanoes. But what they do see is the heat in our homes, and they flock to them. That's why they cover the walls to our homes. And uh, they instinctively start crawling through every possible entrance of the houses, uh, be it uh, cracks or crevices in your siding, uh, window frames, door jams, or what have you. But they make their way in. It's, it's They come through the ceiling tile, you know, shingles, whatever. There's no crack too small for these things to try to uh, enter your home in. And uh, they keep going deeper and deeper and deeper because once they get in there, they're building up an appetite. Then they start searching out food. And they're still looking for the heat, too. So uh, they're going to keep going deeper until they find both. However, there's a lack of natural food for them to discover inside of your home. You know, you might have the occasional spider or something like that and, or other bug that's in there. And, hey, it's a good thing, you know, to, you know they'll take out those things. But unfortunately, there's not enough to keep uh, these critters happy. So they're going to seek out the next best thing. Guess what that is? They're going to be there flying around your house looking for a bug. They're not going to find anything. So they're going to hone in on you taking a shower and land on your shoulders. And all of a sudden, you feel this thing that feels like somebody's crunching a cigarette out on your back because... This little critter is taking a chunk out of your shoulder, and, uh, yeah, they'll start eating us. Uh, Let's see. uh, But, yeah, that was a biological control that the DNRs uh, across the country pretty much said that we should do. So that one lays on their fault. Another one, and this will blow a lot of people's minds because they think it, it's, this critter here is indigenous to the area. This does not just include insects. The European starling was a native of Europe, surprisingly enough, uh, Asia, and northern Africa. And this breed of starling was introduced to North America and South uh, America and Australia and New Zealand as a biological pest control for insects, and also back in the day as a pet, believe it or not. Uh, because uh, back in the day, uh, since the starling was mentioned in Shakespeare's works many times, 
it was a popular bird for whatever reason. I guess they didn't have HBO back then, and a lot of people were, you know, they had nothing else to do but read Shakespeare. And uh, they wanted to emulate them, so they wanted to have starlings as pets. Now, Terry hates these birds with a bloody passion. Personally, I, I think they're attractive looking. Uh, they're not black, black. Uh, they're actually speckled and with a lot of different colors. But uh, they can wreak some havoc on uh, your uh, bird feeders. And they are nasty as far as chasing away other birds go. They will obliterate a suet block in a matter of minutes. I mean, these things go to town on suet. And they'll just make it disappear before your eyes. So, uh, yeah, but they were brought in uh, to attack insects and other pests. So that's another one that uh, they totally messed up on. And it's not just also animals. Mulberry trees. Everybody's parked their car underneath a mulberry tree. And, uh, you know, had the uh, bad outcome of walking out there and finding a bunch of purple stains on it from the fruit falling off the uh, tree itself. And uh, the mulberry tree is not indigenous to our area, and it was actually brought in uh, because they were going to try to grow silkworms here. And the mulberry leaf is the silkworm's favorite food. And they brought in the mulberry trees uh, for the silkworms to eat. And, uh, well, our weather didn't really favor the silkworms a whole heck of a lot. So that didn't go anywhere. So they stopped uh, trying with the silkworms, but the mulberry trees were already here. And they spread, and they spread, and they spread, and they spread. And they spread from Canada all the way down to uh, the tip of South America. Uh, mulberry trees grow. Uh, they're quite hardy <laughs> in all zones. So, uh, yeah, they're out there, and that's another one that was brought in. So uh, bringing in, in non-indigenous species is not always the best idea.